week five on the problem. Well, we are in Revelation chapter two. And just a quick recap for those of you that just may be joining. Revelation comes from the word apocalypto. The English word, that's the Greek word, apocalypto. The English word, I know what you probably can guess what that is, apocalypse. And the word doesn't necessarily mean destruction. It actually means to reveal, the revealing of. The revelation of is the revealing of Jesus. And one thing we need to understand about the book of Revelation is that this is a book talking about the end times. But the reason it's talking about the end times is not for us to look out for the end times. It's a book saying, church, the end times are going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. And you need to get ready and be ready so that when the end times come, you're not going to react and panic. You're going to be be ready to respond as the church so that you can be the revealing of who I am to the world when they don't know what the heck's going on. So in Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John, who has been exiled to the island of Patmos after being boiled alive in oil, surviving that, pretty pretty strong guy if if you ask me, and simply because he was preaching the gospel and speaking the gospel and living it out, he has a vision. And he has a vision of seven lampstands with a man in the middle who was Jesus. The seven lampstands were burning bright, and they were, the, they were the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. And Jesus in the middle said that because it is finished, those were his words on the cross, it is finished, I no longer have any work to do. But my church is to reveal who I am to the world. So I want to make sure that the churches, speaking specifically right now to the seven churches of the Roman province of Asia, I want to make sure that these lampstands, these churches, are burning brightly. And in order to burn brightly, I need to trim the wick of the lampstand. I need to make sure that my oil is flowing to the lampstand. And in order for you to burn brightly, there are some things that I want to encourage. And there are some things that I need to correct. And in every church, it's not just for these seven churches in Asia, but in every letter he ends with, these letters are for anyone who has ears to hear and who will listen and see. So for anyone that has ever told you that these letters are just for these seven churches, they told you wrong. These letters are for the church then and therefore the church today. So so the last three churches we've talked about, number one was the church of Ephesus. They got everything right. They got the systems right. They got the, you know, the worship right. You know, you go to a church and they got the everything right. They got, you know, the, the it's kind of like if you come to Relentless, oh, they, they got the countdown. They got the call to worship. They got the songs, they, which there's going to be some things that change with that as we grow because we got to get some things right too, amen? I pray for a day that we flow without plan. And that may get some people a little uncomfortable, but I'm ready to get uncomfortable. I'm tired of ordering a service that we say that God just flows in. But the church of Ephesus, they had it all right. They had how many times they take communion a year. You know, you, you know they, they had how many times they preach this a year. You know, there's churches that flow in the Holy Spirit, but they talk about tithing the same month every year. Mm-hmm. 
They had all the systems right. They, 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 they got the people together. They had all the, the stuff correct. But he says the thing you got wrong, you got church right, but you fell out of love with me and you don't love each other. And if you don't love me and you don't love each other, nothing you're doing in the church matters. You can serve people all day, but if you don't like the people you serve them with, then the service is worthless. And then the second church, he talks to the church of Smyrna. They were persecuted and they were poor. They weren't poor because they managed money badly. They were poor because they were Christians. And in that time, if you were a believer, the people in Smyrna took from you. It's kind of like what's happen- it's going to happen soon with us. <clears throat> the government says, oh, you're a Christian? We're going to take your nonprofit status, right? So it, it's, 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 it's going to come. Might not be today, but stuff like that's going to start happening. The church at Smyrna, they started getting persecuted and poor because the government and the political people, they were taking from them. And they were pressing through. And Jesus says, you're doing a great job pressing through, but you need to stop being afraid and remember who you serve in the midst of your persecution. Because I don't want my church to be timid about moving forward. And I praise God that we were a little afraid last year, and we, I will be first to admit we made a mistake. I'm not a proud pastor to say I got it wrong. When they shut down the church with COVID, I got it wrong. You, know, you want to know how I got it wrong? I closed the church. And a few weeks later, I realized this is wrong. So then we took out some loans, remodeled the place, and said we're opening back up on Father's Day. And ever since then, increase, 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 increase. And I told the church when we opened up, I don't care what they say, we're never closing the doors again. And I mean that. And you better hold me accountable to it. And and if if y'all never heard me preach, y'all get an idea of who I am. And then last week we talked about the church of Pergamum. They were loyal in what they called the middle of Satan's city. Pergamon was a huge stronghold of satanic power. He says, but you tolerated too much sin and too much perversion of grace. In other words, Pergamon, you did great in a, in a satanic stronghold. But where you got it wrong is you taught that grace meant you did whatever the heck you wanted to do because Jesus saved you. And y'all know the church don't preach that at all in America. Grace covers all. That's the message we preach. Grace does not allow you to do whatever you want. What grace does, it takes away the legal barrier of if you mess up, you do not get to enter into heaven as a saved person. What grace does not do is say you get to live however the heck you want and Jesus covers your sin. No, You are no longer separated from him. What grace does is takes the legal orientation away of you can only enter into his presence once a year into a temple, into the Holy of Holies through one priest which you do not get to get into the place of the presence of God. Grace says now you are that temple and he dwells in you and he can talk to you and have a communication with you one-on-one directly every single second whenever you come into his presence. That's grace. 
But we've perverted it. Oh, Jesus covers your sin. You can live in your sin and he'll let you just live in it. That is not the Jesus I know. And if that's the Jesus you know, trust me, you don't know. You know a version that what I'm about to talk about today has taught you. So having said that, y'all okay? We're going to get into Revelation chapter 2, talking to the fourth church. Verse 18. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Everyone say Thyatira. <clears throat> this is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. Up until this time, each city was a big economic city. They were big cities. They had big economies. They were a big political city. They were big religious and cultural cities. They were big trade cities. But Thyatira was a little different. Thyatira was actually the smallest and least important city of the seven cities that Jesus addressed in the seven letters to the churches. In fact, in Thyatira, there was no record of any significant political or religious persecution that we have. Thyatira was pretty small and pretty insignificant. It's kind of like today when you turn on the news, you'll hear about like D.C., and you might hear about some things in Atlanta, in New York. Maybe you'll hear about some stuff in Savannah every now and then. But I doubt if you turned on Fox News, you'd hear anything about Pooler or Bloomingdale or Guyton or Methingham, Effingham. You wouldn't hear much about that stuff. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You wouldn't hear much about that stuff. These were ins this was an insignificant city as far as the scope of what was going on. Now, Thyatira did have a center of business and trade. What they were famous for was they had all these, uh, you could call them guilds, if you will. They were small uh, 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 trade owners. It's kind of like um, if you go to Forsyth Park to the farmer's market. Everyone had their own businesses. Everyone had their own thing they did, and they would line up in the streets and sell what they had. In fact, um, there was, one, there was one trade they were famous for manufacturing purple dye. If you read, uh, if you're with us in the uh, Acts series, in Acts 16, um, it mentioned actually this lady called Lydia of Thyatira, and they said that she was selling purple cloth. Um, this, this was kind of what Thyatira was known for. There was all these small trades, small businesses. Small city, small trade, small groups, small merchants, small communities. And in addressing this small city, this small group, Jesus puts an emphasis on something for the first time in these four letters. He says, this message is from the Son of God. That's the emphasis he puts, the Son of God. You see, in Jewish language, to be the son of a thing meant that you had the nature of that thing. So for Jesus to put an emphasis that to be the son of God, it wasn't merely that he was suggesting that he had a family lineage or a father-son relationship with Father God. When Jesus was putting an emphasis that he was the son of God, he said that the nature that you see in me is the nature of our father in heaven. And we got this messed up idea of the image of father and Jesus because we think that father is judgment mean angry and we're thankful that he sent his son to cool his anger off. 
But Jesus says, no, I am the son of the father. And to be called his son, my nature is his nature. John 14, 9 says this. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen what? The Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? He's saying, you want to know who the Father is? Look at me. Look at my nature. When you see him, you see the Father. Now you take that idea and you think about what Jesus calls us. The sons and daughters of God. When people look at you and see the way you talk and see your lifestyle and see the way you live, to be called a son or daughter of God means that when they look to your nature, that means they equate your nature with the nature of the God you claim to be your God. And we wonder why the world is giving up on that God. The title of this message is called what? Own the problem. Why ain't people believing in God? It's the church. Because the sons and daughters are revealing to the world what the nature of he is, not by a sermon, but by how we live. And when people see how we live, they say, I don't want nothing to do with your God because your God is your nature by what you claim to be as a son or daughter. Why do you think when people saw Jesus, they said, I don't know what God the Pharisees talked about, but I want the God you're talking about. And they were talking about the same God. But when they saw the Pharisees, they didn't like what? Their nature. When we see Jesus, we see who the Father is. And many people have this jacked up, jacked up idea of who the Father is. So they look to Jesus. And when people have this idea of who is God, they look to all these other sources because they're tired of looking to this jacked up idea of our representation of who he is. Why do you think everyone's exalting all these idols above Yahweh, above Jesus? Because they're tired of seeing his nature in us. We've got to own the problem at some point. At some point, we've got to take some responsibility and say, they have seen a false representation, and we have got to own the problem and make a change. And it does not start with condemning the world's actions. It starts with getting ours right. What did we talk about last week? He says, my eyes of judgment do not start with the world. They start in my own house. Let me tell you something, parents. You got a problem with your kids? Their nature? And your nature. Start looking at yourself. Before blaming your kids. You raised them. Now there is an age of accountability where they take on their own thing. I'm not talking about adults. 
At some point, they make their own decisions. But when you got children and they start speaking things, don't start, where'd you hear that? I can tell you where they heard it. And if they heard it somewhere else, if they had the freedom to speak it in your house, Mm. Okay, let me get back on point. Is this all right? <laughs> mm. This is going to make sense in a minute where I'm going. Jesus starts talking about the nature of the name, then he starts giving some attributes about himself. He says, my eyes are like flames of fire and my feet are like bronze. Flames of fire talk about representing I'm going to look upon my church and it's not just with encouragement and favor, but it's with eyes of judgment because Jesus is the nature of the Father. I will look upon my church and give you the pat on the back, but Jesus will also look at the church and say, we need to correct some stuff. And then he says, feet of bronze. Bronze was the strongest metal in the ancient world. Um, bronze was pure and it was highly refined. It represents something that stands strong and immovable. So he says, my nature is that the things I stand for, it's strong and it's immovable and, it's, and no matter what your culture says should change with the times, it can't move me. And the same truth that I taught in 1 A.D. is the same truth I'm going to teach in 2021 A.D. And you may think that my ways need to change, but I am immovable. And despite what you think, I'm standing on the word that is me. And you either need to conform to it or I've got a place for you. And we're going to talk about that place in the scripture. Jesus says, John, I want you to remind the church of Thyatira who I am and what I'm like because they need to remember my nature when they're about to read this letter. That's a pretty strong introduction to a letter. If I ever got a letter like, hey, before you read this, I want you to remember who I am. I, I, I don't know if I want to read the rest of that letter. That's like when your mom or dad gets on to you. It's like, you remember who I am? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. This is how God is starting out with John. And I think we need to remember that when we read the scripture. Remembering who he is and remember who his nature is. Because, you know, we always come to church and we're, we think, I, I need to come to church to get inspired today. Well, let me tell you something. The only inspiration you need should have been at the point when you came to belief. You shouldn't come here to get inspired. My job is not to inspire you. And just in case you think I'm wrong, I'm going to show you some scripture to prove I'm not. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to inspire people. Nope. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. 
You do not read this and come here to get inspired. The point of church is to get prepared and equipped in what you have already been inspired in. Where does your inspiration come from? An ongoing relationship with someone who loves you more than anyone else could. And he says, so I'm going to prepare people in your life that are going to use my word to prepare and equip you to walk in what you've been inspired in, to go make a difference and go make a change. And we need to remember that when we read this, because when people think this is only an inspirational piece, they think they can change the wording of it. That's why we're in a day when the church is saying we can, I know back then we can't marry gay people, but now it's a different time. When Jesus says, no, 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 I'm pretty immovable. My feet are like bronze. I'm not changing a thing. I'm not trying to inspire you to live like you want. I'm equipping you to live like I'm telling you to so you can represent me well, church. The next verse, he talks to him. Verse 19, I know all the things you do. That's encouraging for some people. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. Now, we've seen this over and over in the four letters. This is pretty standard, that Jesus knows all things. I do want to point out a couple things that, hey, he sees four specific things. He's like, you know what? I see, I see love, faith, service, and patient endurance in the church. And the, and the thing is, he says, not just that you have love, faith, service, and endurance, but you're increasing in them. And we are to never get into a place in church where we're satisfied in what we have. We should always be challenged with wanting to increase. And I think one of the problems in the church of today is we get satisfied that we have a mark of the four but we never get challenged to increase in what we have. Oh, we've got love, we've got faith, we serve our communities, but where's your increase in it? But that's not even the point of what I want to point out in that scripture. Jesus says, I see love, I see faith, I see service, I see patient endurance. You're increasing in it. But here's what I want to point out. Thyatira was the, one of the most insignificant cities. And he says, this least insignificant city, not even you were hidden from me watching everything you were doing. Jesus does not set his eyes on the church based off of their size or even their influence. He only has a couple qualifications for setting his eyes upon you. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. <clears throat> Psalm 33, 18. The Lord watches over those who fear him, those who rely on his unfailing love. And for some reason, we get that messed up thinking God is only looking on those who have significant influence in this nation and in this world. So people put their hope in a president and lose hope when the wrong one gets chosen. Do you think he's only looking on someone with a high up 
influence? That's not the qualification for God looking upon you. What is God's qualification? I look to those who do right. A few verses later, he says, I look away from those who do evil. I look to those who do right. I watch over those who fear me. It does not matter how big you are or how small you are. What matters is how genuine is your walk with him, and he watches everything you do. He tells them, I've seen the things you do. You're increasing in love, your faith, your servants, and your patience. But then he's about to give them the butt. God's always got a big butt. But we should be encouraged in that. Because here's something I see going on with Relentless. Not a lot of people know about this house. But while everyone else is trying to figure out how to keep their people with video stream, we just had the biggest year in our church. And COVID can't, even though it's tried, it can't take over. And quite frankly, and maybe I'm just weird, which is cool. Because God says be aliens and strangers to the world. So I, 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 I'm cool with that status. I get tired of like, I, I'll go in like these places and hear these pastors talk. And they use all these churchy words like, well, we've got to get our assimilation strategies together. And, you know, we've got we, we, we to have our, you know, I don't know the other words because I'm not religious. <laughs> we got we got to get our video teachings, and we got to make sure that everyone stays in the house, and you know we got to do all these things, and you know COVID's coming, so we got to have our mask and our social distancing and skipping rows, and we got and, I'm, and what are you doing, Pastor Kyle? Uh, I mean, nothing different than two years ago. You don't skip rows, no. Why not? I mean, like, if someone's got a disease, I don't think six feet's going to really matter. What are you doing in the midst of a disease? Well, if Jesus put hands on the leper, I'm pretty sure I can just put hands on their shoulders. And Aren't you scared? No, nah, I don't want my fear. I just fear the Lord. I don't fear sickness. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't really care what you think. No, you should. You're struggling, we're not. Well, how are you going to be relevant to the world? I need to, we need to redeem it, not be relevant to it. And I know we're laughing, but that's exactly the condition and the vein people are thinking in. We, we had a, a, a pastor come last night that's going to start coming here on Saturdays because he just said, I, I want to learn. And um, we, we went to dinner at a very healthy place, the, the China Buffet. And um, so if I'm poking out a little bit today, that's why. And uh, he, was, he, he said, you know what I don't get? Because it, it, was, it was like like this with more last night. And he was like, what I don't get is how you're preaching so bold, but people are coming. And... <laughs> And Jesus himself, people were coming, and, and, and they said, we want bread. And Jesus said, well, eat my flesh, drink my blood. 
and half of them left because people seek out bread, but they don't know the kind of bread they actually need. And a lot of people sell, settle for the pat-your-back kind of bread. But I'm looking at a group of people who want that I need to chew on the meat kind of bread. So, Jesus is about to tell them, let me tell you the problem in the church of Thyatira. Because you're doing a lot of good things right, but there's an issue as to why you're not burning as bright as you can. Y'all ready? Because this is about to get... It's about to get in it. It's 11.25. I ain't nowhere close to being done, so y'all just keep back. Uh, if, y'all, if y'all came here for a 30-minute message, that ain't going to happen. I spend all my time working. Y'all can spend all y'all time sitting. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, you are permitting that one, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to turn away from, him or from her immorality. Even in the smallest, seemingly insignificant places, the enemy is still at work trying to corrupt anything that glorifies God. And I've heard so many pastors and preachers say the enemy will leave you alone if you're insignificant. I've heard that, you know, new levels, new devils type thing. But let me tell you, the only one jealous for you is God. The enemy is not jealous for you. Let let me take care of some religious things. The devil does not want you in hell. He just doesn't want you with God. He's not trying to build a bigger kingdom because he knows he's already lost. He's just trying to take glory from the one who's won. So if you think he is only going to try to come against you if you have significant influence, that is the biggest blinders that you've got on. Because it's not about only significant influence. It's how can I take any glory away from the Almighty. And a Jezebel spirit or any work of the, of the enemy, he will make a mockery of anything and anyone that is giving glory to God. And at the center of the corruption of the church at Thyatira, of the smallest significance, because they were doing all these things right, the enemy tried to corrupt it. And as we read from the text, it says a woman named Jezebel. Jesus called this woman Jezebel. And the name Jezebel has a powerful association in the Bible. You know, when you call someone a name, you got an association with it. When you call someone a Judas, you know that you mean they're betraying you. So when you call someone a Jezebel, it comes with a connotation. It has a meaning. You see, Jezebel was one of the most corrupted people in the Old Testament. 
She was trying to combine the worship of God and the worship of Baal. She was interfering with the worship of Yahweh in the book of Kings. She was the wife of this king. It was King Ahab. And Jezebel, being the wife of a king, being the wife of someone who had much influence over the area, she said, I want to mingle in a false god with the culture of Israel worshiping the true god of Yahweh. So she was disregarding the rights of the common people and she was defying the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. It's not too far off from what's going on right now in 2021. There is a spirit and leadership in this nation who is trying to mix false worship in our school systems, in our churches, trying to take away the rights of Christians and give rights to all this other false practice. And if you will worship anything else, they're trying to call you the hypocrites and the wrong. Well, Baal was this nature god. And she was persuading her husband, Ahab, to introduce the worship of this false god into the culture of Israel. And she would destroy anyone that came against that. And in fact, all of these prophets, just like today, would speak against her. And when they spoke against her, she ordered that they would be killed. So we come to a time in 1 Kings where every prophet of God had been killed except one. You know what his name was? Elijah. And Elijah was mad. A good kind of mad. A righteous anger. Maybe a righteous anger that the church should start getting in line with. And I'm telling you, I, I've got some righteous anger in me. Sometimes I let it spew out a little too unrighteously. But Elijah was angry. He said, this ain't right. So he prophesies and calls upon a drought for three years. Because he's like, y'all need to wake up. Y'all need to see that y'all are worshiping a false deity. Y'all ever heard about Jezebel before? So in 1 Kings 17.1, it says this, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. He says, it ain't going to rain for three years. And he didn't say until God says it's going to rain. He says until I say it's going to rain. That dude is confident in his walk. And he wasn't out of line because Elijah knew if he spoke it was going to rain, it was going to be because God told him to speak. Because that's how God gets his word in the earth, through the mouths of men and women of who he is, through the sons and daughters. He was not out of line. He says, it ain't going to rain till I say it's going to rain. So it doesn't rain for three years. And in 1 Kings 18, Elijah is about to come to King Ahab and says it's about to rain. Well, in, in 1 Kings 18, look at verse 16. It says, Obadiah went to tell Ahab Elijah had come. And Ahab went out to meet Elijah. So when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, Is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? 
just like a politician to blame a Christian. <laughs> I made no trouble for you, Elijah said. You and your family are the troublemakers. You refuse to obey the commands of the Lord and you worship the images of Baal instead. Let me just say this. The people of God will be blamed for many things that the people of the world are causing. But the people of God need also to be held accountable to make sure that if you claim to be of God, you allow his fiery eyes of judgment to burn up every corrupted thing in you so that you can be shown as spotless. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Because we get the scripture wrong. We're not called to judge. You sure that scripture? Because you've been taught that. Christians aren't called to judge. That's not what it says. It says, remove the plank in your own eye so that when you are called to judge, you will not be called a hypocrite. Because if you read the Old Testament, every prophesy called out a leader and judged them for what they were doing wrong. Get it right. So Elijah says, no, 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 well, I ain't done nothing wrong. You're the troublemaker. Your wife and caused you to introduce this false god into our nation. Sound familiar? Verse 19. This is where it gets good. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. And then Elijah said to him, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left. But Baal got 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I'll get the other bull, lay it on the wood on the altar. I won't set fire to that. Then call on the name of your God. I'll call on the name of my God. And the God who answers by setting the fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. So Elijah says, I'm the only prophet left of my God. Y'all got 450 prophets of Baal. You get a bull, I'll take the other one. You put the bull on your altar, I'll put my bull on my altar. You call down fire, I'll call, I'll call down fire. Whichever God answers, that's God. That's a bad boy. I would love to go downtown and foresight and have that kind of contest. Let's get all the Wiccans downtown in Savannah. Let you call upon your God, I'll call upon my God. What was Baal? A nature god. What do witches worship? And it's all up in Savannah. Now this is where I identify with Elijah. Because Elijah is a sarcastic, taunting kind of guy. Look at what he does. 1 Kings 18, verse 26. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. They call on the name of Baal from the morning until noontime. 
hours shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. <laughs> About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Shout louder. He scoffed. For surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Maybe he's relieving himself. This is the Bible, y'all. Maybe he's away on a trip. Or maybe he's asleep. Maybe he needs to get woke. Oh, y'all think they just came up with that? <laughs> I love the Bible. So they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, when their God didn't answer, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of evening sacrifice, but there was still no sound, no reply, no response. So after that, Elijah gets 12 stones, representing 12 tribes of Israel. He builds an altar, and then he builds a trench around it. And then on top of the stones, he puts wood on it. He gets the other bull, cuts it in pieces, puts the bull on top of it. And then Elijah goes next level. He says, give me four jars. And then he fills the jars up with water. Now remember, they in drought. And if you don't know how to set a fire, if it's really dry, it's really easy for something to catch fire. And Elijah don't want anyone making any excuses. So he takes these four jars of water and pours water over the entire wood and the offering three times. There's 12 jars of water. So this thing is completely covered in water. Verse 36. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you've brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. And it says that there was about three gallons of water in that thing. So this was fire. When all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground. They cried out, he's God. The Lord, he's God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. How many were there? 450. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Don't worry, we ain't going to start that ministry. Now this is a great day for Elijah. You're probably wondering why I'm going into all this detail. This is a great day for Elijah. All the prophets have been killed. He called Jezebel's prophets out to the table and proved in front of about a thousand people, because remember the prophets of Asherah were there too, proved to all of them that Baal was false and Yahweh was real. 
Fire came down, just like he said it would. And Elijah took all the prophets, and they were dead. Talk about a great resume for a pastor. Truth. There was so much going on for Elijah. Top of his game, top of his career. 1 Kings 19. This is the very next few verses. Verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told that woman, Jezebel, everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now, you would have thought a man that just called down fire from heaven wouldn't be shooken, shaken by a woman saying, I'm going to kill you. You just killed 450 people. I'm going to kill you. You would have thought Elijah would have been like, I'm good. I'm good, dog. But look at what Elijah does. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. After all that, he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left the servant there. He went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough. He said to the Lord, take my life for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. In a moment, the threat of this Jezebel woman made this man who had just called down fire from heaven question everything and pray for death and was suicidal. Jezebel was famous for killing prophets. Jezebel was famous for a lot of things. Her husband loved this vineyard, and there was a man who owned it named Naboth. So Jezebel lied and said Naboth was blaspheming their God, Yahweh. They stoned him to death just so she could get the vineyard for her husband. You know what Jezebel is also famous for? Castrating men. Because if she took away their masculinity, they couldn't walk in any sort of authority. Do y'all not see how the Jezebel spirit is at work today in America? We've got men trying to identify as women. And you think it's just a physical thing, but let me get real about the church for a second. For years, men have taken a back seat to letting the women do all the church stuff. Let me get even more real. Can I? When we worship, women get more free in expression than men do because it's masculine to not get free. When God commands us to dance like David danced. But you think the Bible says, decide how you want to worship. That's not what the scripture talks about. 
it says to get so lost in worship that you have no conscience of what you're doing. And I'm not trying to tell everyone to get there in a minute, but we need to, we need to call out the problem. We're too proud. Now, I'm not saying just because you don't get lost in worship, you're controlled by a Jezebel spirit. Don't, don't get me wrong. But what I am talking about is what the Jezebel spirit hates is for men to lead. And here in Revelation, Jesus is speaking at the church in Thyatira, and he says, you're permitting that woman who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. He puts a name on it. That's no light judgment. In the Greek manuscript, it actually says, when it says that woman Jezebel, it's referring to, they, most believe it was either a, the, 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 the pastor's wife, if you will, or a, a woman leader in, in the church. Most believe Jesus is speaking about a higher up woman in this church in Thyatira leading. Look at what, look, let's read 20 and 21 again. I have this complaint against you. You're permitting, you are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. She calls herself a prophet. You permitted someone who self-professed to be a prophet to lead the church. You know, in 1 Timothy 5.22 and, and even in Numbers 27, it talks about appointing church leaders by the laying on of hands. Now, we don't know if this woman was appointed by the laying on of hands, but here's where I'm wanting to get to. This is where the church is guilty of, just like in Thyatira. We put people in leadership too quick without a commissioning, without allowing people to lead without proper alignment, without seeing people walk into steps of humility, without keeping people accountable, because this is what the church does. When someone wants to lead, this is what we see. If we can get them to lead, we've got their pocketbook. If we can get people to get in leadership, we'll keep them in our assimilation numbers. I can name about three churches in the local area I have spoken to their staff, and the words came out of their mouth, I don't even believe that the Bible is 100% true. And I guarantee you most of you have been in these churches. A hundred percent. I'm trying to tell you without telling you. A hundred percent guarantee. Because no one is staying accountable to it. Because people are saying, I believe. I'm a leader. I'm a pastor. I'm a prophet. I'm a worship leader. I'm this. And we go, oh, Awesome. Go through our next steps program and you're ready. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. There's no accountability and before you know it, something happens where a woman or even a man, because Jezebel does not just operate in women, it's a spirit that operates by manipulating leadership. What, what is the Jezebel spirit doing here? It's leading the people into false teaching. 
That's what the Jezebel spirit is doing. It's leading the people to believe what they want to believe, specifically in this passage of sexual immoral lives and eating the, the, the food offered to idols. In other words, live how you want to live, do what you want to do, and Jesus is okay with it. And Jesus says, I'm not okay with it, and you need to own the problem because the church loves to blame Jezebel. But what does Jesus say? Church, you allowed her in. He says, the, he says, church, you are the gatekeepers, not the devil. And this is what the church does. When we recognize that there is a spirit operating the church, we get together and pray. We got to cast that demon out. We got to get that spirit out. You want to know how to get it out? Own the problem. We let it in. Demons don't have authority to walk in on their own account, people. And if people are in leadership teaching the wrong stuff, it's because we allowed it. You want to know why the Jezebel spirit is operating in the Methodist church right now to where they're splitting because they're ordaining homosexual pastors? Because the leaders in the church allowed it. You want to know why Catholic priests have issues of sexual morality? Because the spirit got in the church. You want to know how? The leaders allowed it. You want to know why people are preaching a false grace message in the church? Live how you want to live because you're saved and covered in the blood? Because the leaders allowed it. Because we don't care that people are growing. We care that our seats are growing. There's an issue in the church and we've Got to own the problem. My Bible got water all over it. See, Jezebel loves to feed in the idea of it's good, it's a good idea for men to take a back seat. We love to feed idea into the idea that. Worship gods that let you do what you want. And we love to call that God Jesus. We love to feed in the idea of go get you want when you want it. We love to make excuses for our lifestyle. And say it's okay, Jesus still loves me. Do you not realize that you are allowing things to corrupt his truth to meet your own desires. When he says, sacrifice your desires for mine. And he says, I will provide. I'll take care of you if you live according to my truth. Well, I just don't see that happening, Kyle, for me. We'll own the problem. Because if he's not providing, it ain't because of him. You need to take an inventory. What have I allowed in? Is this making sense? Look at Matthew 24, 4 through 14. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. Many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah. They'll deceive many. You'll hear of wars and threats of wars. Don't panic. 
These things must take place, but the end will not follow immediately. Y'all hear that? Wars are going to come. Don't panic. The end ain't going to happen immediately. Nations will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes in parts of the world. Y'all hear that scream? Casting out Jezebels and Kiss Church. <laughs> there will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of birth pains with more to come. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? If you think earthquakes and natural disasters are signs of the end times, that's just the first. And then it goes into what are the significant signs of the end end. Look at verse 9. Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. Is that happening quite yet? And then open up your eyes, y'all. Now it's coming. Don't get, don't get it wrong. It's, it's going to come. But be ready for it. Don't panic. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. That is happening. Many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. So will be rampant everywhere and love them. And sin will be rampant everywhere. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it and the end will come. What is the purpose of scripture? Prepare and equip. He says, many false prophets will arrive, or will arise, many teachers will arise, and they will not come in my name. And here we are in Revelation, and Jesus is reminding them, I told y'all already that many are going to come up against you. Why did you allow it to happen when I've already told you when I was with you in Matthew? You see, the fact of the matter is we don't have any excuse. I didn't see that one coming. Did you read? See, many of you may not know this, but let me get a little transparent. We're, we've been in this facility two years last July. And last July, I made a move that no one understood. You know what I did? I removed everyone from leadership. Everyone. You want to know why I did it? Because I saw one or two that I should not have allowed in. And you know what happened when I removed them? Eventually, they left. Increase. Because I could no longer blame why isn't it happening? God, why aren't you doing it? Because God said... You allowed. And some of it was, Kyle, what have you allowed in you? What do you need to remove? You see, we love to play the blame game in church. But at some point, we got to take some responsibility. People will come and try to corrupt with all kind of false teachings. You know what Mark 9.42 says? 
If you cause one of these little ones who trust me and fall into sin, it'd be better for you to be thrown to the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. I believe that's not just a word for someone being led by a false spirit, but that's also a word to pastors who have so much disorder in their house where they allow anyone to teach any theology that they allow because they believe that all truth could be any truth. There was only one truth. And that has to be taught, not your interpretation of it. Because your interpretation could be, in fact, a spirit causing you to believe in a false interpretation. And you won't hear this preached everywhere. That's the sad part. And the vision of this house is to keep this small. Why? Because this is given to you go out because we're not going to make this dependent on a super preacher you are the church you are the sons and daughters go display his nature in every conversation you have he says you're permitting this and when he says you're permitting before Jesus tells the church in Thyatira what they need to do he he had to tell them what he would do So look what happens in Revelation 2.22. Y'all getting bored? Okay, good. If you said yes, then we'd take care of you. (laughs) Verse 22. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. And those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. You see, the adultery here is twofold. It's not just unfaithful in sexual morality. And sexual morality is not just homosexuality. It's homosexuality. It's living together outside of marriage. It's getting together with people before you're married. It's a whole slew of things. He says, you're not just faithful in sexual morality. You're unfaithful to the God that saved you. Because remember, we are the bride of Christ. If we are the bride and he is the groom, then that means we are held accountable to a marriage covenant with Jesus. Amen? He says, I will throw Jezebel on a bed of suffering because I've been trying to deal with her. Remember in verse 21, it says, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. He says, you don't want me, you reject me, you keep causing my people to commit adultery, not only to themselves, but worship a false God and embrace false truths. And I believe that's half the church in America. Just because you preach Jesus don't mean you're preaching truth. And I hate to tell you that, but it's true. That's why Jesus says, many will come in my name, but I'll say to you that I never knew you. We love to preach false doctrine and mask it with Jesus. He says, you do that, and your life will be on a bed of suffering. And as for the rest of you, you're going to get the same consequence unless you repent. So let me just say this, church. A lot of your suffering has nothing to do with God's lack of delivering you. It's rather your repentance because of laying in your own bed of suffering. Why won't God deliver me? He's already delivered you. Why am I suffering? Because you made your own bed. 
Why can't God get me out of the situation? Because you keep relying on your own strategies rather than living straight before him. I can't get out of this mess, so the only answer is to compromise on his word because it makes sense. Okay, well, lie in your bed of suffering. That's exactly what he says. He's, going, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the, he's not talking to unsaved people. He's talking to the church. He says, you're making compromises? Lay in your own bed of suffering. I'm going to do it to you just like Jezebel. Why do you think so many houses are suffering right now? Why do you think church people don't get out of hurt and pain? It's not because he hasn't delivered you. Are y'all hearing this? Stop blaming God for his lack of doing. It's yours. God, what, I need to own the problem. Show me what I need to do. Show me what I need to get clean. Show me. You see, this is where the religious part of church gets wrong. We think I need to get it right so I can be made right with God. No. God made you right by paying the debt. But here's the other side of it. God made me right so I can walk in the deliverance that you purchased. I can't walk in that deliverance if I'm laying in a bed of suffering as a result of me not getting it right. Because God cannot get your life right for you. You have to come into agreement with what he did. See, that's what iniquity is all about. The word iniquity means to be bent, to be twisted. The Bible says you were born into iniquity. That means when you're born, you're, you are born bent up and twisted towards sin. Can people be born gay? Absolutely. Why? It's an iniquity. Why do you think babies can be born addicted to drugs? The sins of a father can last up to three or four or up to seven. Yeah, y'all ain't heard this. He says, you can be born bent. Twisted, a slave to what? Sin. So he says, when I redeem you and save you, you are saved from what? Your iniquities. I've redeemed you so you are no longer bent. You are made in right standing. So if you live in a lifestyle, it's not because you're bent anymore. It's you choose to live in agreement with a false slavery. Well, I'm born this way. I believe in Jesus. Well, then you're choosing to walk in something that you are no longer a slave to. Do y'all see how it all works? God won't deliver me. He's already done that. Walk into the truth of what you think you're still a slave to because you've been freed from it. Have I lost y'all? See, it's all in Scripture. Every excuse we've ever come up with is all in here. 
You want to know how I know God is all up in this? Every t- Last night after I preached this, headache. Right now I'm preaching this, headache. He is not liking the fact that I'm bringing this word. The enemy. Because so, so, y'all need, we, we need this. That means pray that this thing gets gone as soon as we say amen. Look at verse 23. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. He's talking to the church. Verse 24, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. Hold tight to the truth of what he has taught until Jesus returns. A part of holding tight is owning the problem. Removing the compromise, removing the loose grip. Verse 26, to all who are victorious and who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. And we're getting scared about who has authority over the nations. The promise of God says if you obey him, he'll give who? You. There is nothing to be afraid of. Oh, this country's going to hell. No, it ain't. If we obey him to the end, we've got, the authority is going to be given to us. It's will we stay faithful in the fight when it seems lost. Verse 27 and 28, they will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my father and I will give them the morning star. You know who the morning star is? Jesus. You know the thing we miss about grace? He gives you Jesus. That's grace. No longer entering into a temple once a year. He gives you access every single moment. That's something that the Israelites never had. And you get it. And you think it's just about salvation and then living how you want. It's so much more than that. You get him as a part of your life. And if you truly included him as a part of your life, then his nature should become yours. And when people see you, they would know him. And if they're not seeing him, then you have not had a true revealing of what you have access to every moment. And when it says the iron and clay pots, I'm about to close. It's actually referring to something that David wrote about in Psalm chapter 2. Look at verses 8 through 11. Only ask and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance till the whole earth is your possession. You will break them with an iron rod, smash them like clay pots. The same wording he just used in the scripture. And now then, you kings, you kings. You know Revelation how it says Jesus is the king of what? Kings? It's capital K of little k. Guess who the little K's are? Say it. You are. Because kings have what? Authority. Why does Jezebel try to strip authority? 
Be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Jesus says, Thyatira, I've told you once through David, I'm going to tell you again. It's going to get worse, but I'm going to give you the authority. So act wisely and fear me. And be encouraged because you get me. But you have got to own the problem. You've got to stop blaming everything else. I've given you the authority over the nations. So start taking authority over your house. And the last verse, and we're going to close. 29. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let's embrace truth. The truth of this and run toward that and away from anything else. This is not some lackadaisical God is going to do it. No, he's going to do it when we get in line with that and start doing it. He has equipped you to do every good work. You know what good work is? It's, just not, it's not just for others. It's also to do the good work in your own home, in, the own, in our houses, in taking and owning the problem and saying, you know what? I'm the gatekeeper of my temple. I'm the gatekeeper of my home. We are the gatekeepers of this church, and we are not going to allow the enemy to have anything. And when we get that right, this nation is going to come up under God because they're going to see his nature like a city on a hill, and we don't have to go try to convince them with a word. They're going to come running to a light that they have never seen before. Amen. Will be the revealing of Jesus. Amen.